What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. I want to get into why the Delta variant, this is the uh, variant of the COVID virus out of India, why this should worry Republicans and this bizarre news story about United Healthcare. We'll get into that. By the way, they're following on uh, another one of their competitors why Joe Manchin will not become a Republican. This is a fascinating take. And Professor Richard Wolf will be with us. What's all this hysteria about inflation? Is it justified in what's going on? The piece I published over at HartmanReport.com is titled, Trump, who corrupted the highest office in America, must be prosecuted. And, uh, you know, pretty straightforward about this. You know, I start out with Honore de Balzac, who said, behind every great fortune, there's a great crime. And you know, I point out that Trump obviously made his fortune with a great crime as his niece, Mary Trump, is suing him right now for basically stealing all the, or much of his family's money, making himself rich and impoverishing his relatives. Uh, but, you know, frankly, I think all of Donald Trump's crimes need to concern us. And sadly, I'm not seeing any evidence... But, you know, the bottom line is that we tend in America not to prosecute the rich and powerful. It's just, it's a very straightforward thing. I mean, think about it. Name one billionaire or somebody worth over $100 million other than Jeffrey Epstein, who has been seriously prosecuted in the last couple of decades. It just doesn't happen anymore. And even Epstein... He got convicted, and then, you know, the prosecutor down in Florida and the, and the jailer down in Florida, oh, you can go back to, you know, having, having teenage girls come hang out at you at your uh, compound. And I mean, it was just, it was crazy. I mean, he's been permanently shut up, and, and I'm convinced that there's some nasty stuff there. But, I mean, he's literally the only example that I can think of. Maybe, maybe there's another one that you know of. But, you know, that's just where we're at. And, you know, there is a certain immunity available to really wealthy people. They can hire the very best lawyers. And many of them have politicians deeply in debt to them and sometimes judges. But, you know, France just convicted Sarkozy, their president, of bribery. 
And Israel is, has brought charges against Netanyahu for multiple criminal events that could land him years in prison. It's one of the reasons that people speculate that he's pulling a Donald Trump right now. Go, oh, it's, it's fraud. It's the most fraudulent election. You know, it's because he's trying to hang out of power because it's the thing that keeps him out of jail. But neither of those countries have collapsed because their, their president or prime minister was prosecuted, or in the case of France, convicted. I mean, this is also true of South Korea. It's also true of Taiwan. You know, these countries did not collapse. In fact, you know, accountability is, is a pretty important thing. You know, Donald Trump brought open fascists into the White House, people like Mike Flynn, uh, Paul Manafort, you know, a longtime career as a grifter, as a, as a mobbed-up criminal tied into uh, uh, Russian-aligned uh, Ukrainian and other, you know, countries in that uh, former Soviet orbit, uh, oligarchs and billionaires. And, I mean, he's been doing, the, he was doing the dirty work for politicians who literally killed their opponents. That was Paul Manafort. Trump brought him in as campaign manager. And, of course, Michael Flynn. And then you got grifters and con artists like Betsy DeVos and Elaine Chow and Wilbur Ross, all who have been uh, not accused of, as in a court of law, but accused of in the media, of committing crimes or at least corruption while they're in the White House. And then, of course, there's Bill Barr. I mean, back in 1992, Bill Clinton won that election in November. This was the tail end of the Reagan-Bush era. Reagan had been president from 1980. Well, he won the 1980 election. I'll keep it to round numbers. Uh, he, he won the 1980 election, um, and then uh, he got reelected in 84, and then his vice president, George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, won the election in 88, and so was president until 1992. And in December, in fact, the week of Christmas, 1992, George Herbert Walker Bush had made, actually several months earlier, had made Bill Barr his attorney general. And Lawrence Walsh and his uh, little crew of investigators were closing in on George Herbert Walker Bush for the Iran-Contra scandal. This is the one where the president of Iran, Abdullah Holasad, I, I can't even pronounce his first name, but Bonnie Sauter was his last name. He, he wrote a book about this, actually, I, which I didn't even know until like a couple months ago. I bought a copy of it online. My turn, my story to tell, my turn to tell the story, something like that. Abul Hassan Bani Sadr. And he told the story to the Christian Science Monitor, which is where it's easiest to Google, that he was president in September of 1992. This is leading up to the November 1992 election between George Herbert, excuse me, he was president in September of 1980. And this was leading up to the 1980, November 1980 election between Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan. And the hostages had been held for almost a year at that point. And he ran in, earlier that year on a, on a platform of freeing the hostages. More than 90% of Iran wanted the hostages freed. They just, you know, it was not a popular thing what these so-called students did. And so he goes to Ayatollah Khomeini, once he becomes president, he goes to Ayatollah Khomeini and says, uh, let's, re let's release the hostages. And Khomeini says, we can't do that. We cut a deal with the Reagan campaign to hold them until after the election. And sure enough, 
The hostages were freed to the minute as Ronald Reagan, on January 20th, 1981, as Ronald Reagan put his hand on the Bible to be sworn in as president. That was to the minute the moment that the hostages were freed, keeping the deal. So anyhow, Lawrence Walsh, the special prosecutor, was closing in on George Herbert Walker Bush's role in this. Reagan at this point is like, you know, in full-blown dementia, Alzheimer's. Can't testify, can't do anything. And they're going after Bush, and he's, he had subpoenaed Bush's diary, and Bush is like, how do I stop this investigation, Bill Barr? And Bill Barr said, just pardon everybody. He won't, be, he won't have any leverage over anybody anymore. He can't get anybody to testify. You're, you're in the clear. And so, you know, Bush did that. And the headline across the, the top of the New York Times, Bush pardons six in Iran affair, averting a Weinberger trial, prosecutor assails cover-up. Yeah. Bill Barr covered up the crimes of Reagan and Bush. And I would argue those crimes were actually treason. I'm not sure we were actually at war with Iran, so maybe it doesn't quite qualify as treason, but it's damn close. And, you know, I mean, that's Bill Barr. And then, and then you got Trump. I mean, the Mueller report, uh, you know, Trump is committing his own crimes. The Mueller report lays out 10 specific examples of obstruction of justice, criminal felony actions by Donald Trump. There's 10 of them. Now, they made the point that under Justice Department guidelines, he can't be prosecuted until he leaves office. But hey, here's the roadmap once he's gone. Is Merrick Garland pursuing this? To the best of our knowledge, no. Why the hell not? I mean, you know, he, he, he took bribes from foreign governments. He passed top secret intelligence along to the Russians that led to burning an Israeli spy. That was in his first week in office. He was sending uh, campaign information to the Russians during the 2016 campaign so that they could carefully calibrate their interference on Facebook and other social media. This guy, Donald Trump, was a criminal before he came into the White House and was a criminal during the four years that he was in the White House. Very, very straightforward. So now America has more people in prison than any other country in the world both on an actual numbers basis and, a per, and obviously on a per capita basis. Why is that? Well, because we've had, you know, 100, 100 years of tough on crime politicians, which really meant tough on black people politicians, but that's a whole other rant. Uh, but tough on crime politicians who said, you know, if you let criminals get away with crimes, you just empower them. And you also encourage other wannabe criminals to do the same thing. And there actually is some truth to that. I mean, you know, obviously we have not uh, put this thing into practice in any kind of reasonable way. But the point is, if Trump is allowed to get away with this, then when the next corrupt Republican comes along, say Rick Scott, you know, his, his, uh, before he became a politician, uh, you know, he made a mil tens of millions, maybe over $100 million from this company that was convicted of the largest Medicare fraud in the history of the United States. And then he took that money and uh, you know became the governor of Florida and then he and then he used his own money to become United States senator and now he's going to be running for president in 2024 so he gets in the white house and he's going to look around and go oh, well they never prosecuted Donald Trump i guess i can do this stuff too trump directing the justice department to go after eric swalwell i i, I mean this uh, in fact i mean you know trump directing the justice department specifically 
to go after the heads of the intelligence committee, the head of the intelligence committee, and the, and the guy who was leading his prosecution in the impeachment. Where, and, and, and is anything being done about this? We'll see, but I think it is time that we hold this guy accountable. I mean, the Republicans are all about accountability, remember? Uh, Bill Clinton, oh, he, he, he got a BJ from Monica. We got we to gotta impeach this guy. We got to hold him accountable. And they did. Of course, he was a Democrat. Holding Republicans accountable? No, not so much. But here's the thing. If we don't hold Trump accountable soon, and Barr, and the other corrupt members of his cabinet, it's going to be too late. And a precedent will have been established to say, yeah, Josh Hawley, Rick Scott, Ted Cruz, whoever is the next Republican president, do whatever the hell you want. No consequences. Nothing to worry about. It's all good. This is nuts. So, anyhow, that's a, you can read the whole rant and all the links to everything over at HartmanReport.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Cliff in Santa Clarita, California. Hey, Cliff, what's up? Good morning there, sir. When you mentioned rich guys going to jail, I immediately thought of Bernie Madoff. But he wasn't rich. He wasn't rich? No, well, I mean, he stole a bunch of money, I, I suppose. Uh, you could say he was rich. But you know why Madoff went to prison? It wasn't because he was running a Ponzi scheme. I mean, there's, there, there's no shortage of those. He went to prison because he was stealing from rich people. Oh, okay. I well, mean, didn't seriously, that make him rich? Didn't well, that make him rich? I, you know, he got rich with his Ponzi scheme, but uh, they took it all away from him. I think, and he was just, you know, just a, you know, upper middle class schlub when he started, as I recall. Oh, okay. So, okay. he wasn't one of the chosen few, shall we say? Okay. Hey, I got one real quick theory, Tom. Sure. You've mentioned uh, Adolf Hitler being a man that was, let's say, not very well endowed, right? Uh, well, he had one testicle, if that's what you're talking about. I thought he was a micro... Uh, oh, we don't know. Anyway. I, I don't know okay. about that, but yeah. Oh, I thought, I thought I heard you say that one time. Because the sto- according to Stormy Daniels, Mr. Uh, Orange Man wasn't super well endowed either. Yes. I wonder if it's it, like it a little a mushroom, similar, is what she said, yes. The, the, the angry inch, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering if there's a similarity, like he's he's angry at the entire world and that helped make him such a mean In other mean words, man sexual because... frustration turns into tyrannical behavior? <laughs> yeah, you know, it may well not, be. It's plausible, isn't it, it? It absolutely is. And I and I think yeah. that sexual frustration or, or fear of impotence or whatever is one of the things that drives a lot of these guys that run around with these giant penises strapped, excuse me, guns strapped to the uh, to, to their backs. Pick, you know, pickup trucks. Yeah. Well, it's and yeah. and yeah, not just the pickup trucks, but uh, yeah. Know. Yeah, I think it's possible. Yeah. Cliff, I got to move along. But thank you for the call, Paul in Lucerne, California. Hey, Paul, what's up? Hey, Tom. Real quick, uh, to your previous caller, there's a difference between rich and wealth. Most wealthy people don't go to jail. Rich people do go to jail because they're not wealthy. Now, let's get into what's the distinction the between the two. If you're wealthy, you got more money than you could ever spend in your lifetime. If you're rich, you can spend that in your lifetime. If you I see. Right. Okay. 
So that's, that's your criteria. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Now, we're in a fight for our democracy right now. You bet. And throughout history, the most committed individuals win their fight. And this is a pretty tried and tested rule here. I mean, it's not a law, but the most committed individual usually wins the fight. Yep. They are very committed to stealing our democracy. Yep. Check it out. Mo Brooks asked these guys, are you willing to die for your commitment? And they said yes by entering that building. Yep. Okay, now, if we and do not show did. the same I mean, a cop shot one of them. Yeah, if we do not show the same commitment in trying to take back our democracy, we'll probably lose this fight. Yeah, but I don't think that by same commitment you mean we need to be breaking into buildings and committing crimes. No, no, no. We have the same the same commitment, but we're We need to be just blind. as ferocious and just as committed and just right. as tenacious. Right. Yeah, right. I'm not, we're nonviolent completely because yeah. I totally believe you cannot kill for your freedom. You could die for your freedom, but you cannot kill for it. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, nice tell that to people in World War II. But, I, you know, I get your point, Paul, and I don't disagree with it they at all. They fighting for their freedom, Tom. It's totally different. Yeah. Okay. I can have that argument with you if you like. Okay. No, we're out of time. But, Paul, thank you. I, right. I can't. I Actually, I can't disagree with anything you've said. Thank you. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two ends, or enter the code Hartman, the two ends, before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Tony in Chicago. Hey, Tony, what's on your mind today? Good morning, Tom. I've got a frustrating point. We have been complaining about the Republican Party for a long time. They are obstructionists and they don't follow any rules. How can we stop them? You know, they, if their policy is 90% against people, they still do that. And, and Democrats has a 
opinion poll of 90% in favor, still they can do it. I know there are some rules in this country that they can overrun it, but can Mr. Biden, or President Biden, sorry, make an executive order and go with his uh, $60 trillion package? Make an executive order to pass the, you're talking about the infrastructure bill? Yeah. Yeah, no, he can't. Uh, the Constitution's really clear about this. The Congress is the only body, the you know, of the three branches of government. You get Congress, the courts, and the, and the executive branch, the presidency. And Congress raises taxes and spends money or appropriates money. And then Congress then hands that money off with specific instructions as to how it's to be used to the executive branch, and the executive branch actually then writes the checks and, and hires the contractors and or the government employees and gets things done and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, there are some small areas where what you're talking about, Tony, uh, Biden could do. For example, Donald Trump took $5 billion out of the money that had been appropriated for the Pentagon and that was going to be used to upgrade uh, soldiers' housing. You've got a bunch of housing in the United States on uh, military bases where, you know, it's rat infested or there's mold in the walls and stuff like that. And they were going to rehab all this stuff. He took that money and used it to build his wall down on the southern border because Congress refused to appropriate the money for the wall. Um, so Biden could move a little bit of money here and there in some ways, although he, there are those who argue that what Trump did was a crime. But uh, he couldn't do that with a trillion dollars. Well, my question is, Republicans don't want it because I know that if this happens, people will be happy and they will not. Republicans won't win in 2022 or 24. And they will definitely make sure it doesn't happen. So how we rectify the issue, because Democrat senators from West Virginia are not on board with this. Yeah. There is no way to rectify the issue, Tony. I mean, the bottom line is if you know, Mitch McConnell has made it very clear that he's going to try to prevent any consequential legislation from passing Congress so that Joe Biden will have no victories, so that in 2022, particularly young people will get real cynical and say, ah, those Democrats are just bad as the Republicans. They don't do a damn thing. That's Mitch yep. McConnell's plan. And, uh, you know, there, uh, other than getting a larger majority, there's no way to stop it. Tony, thank you for the call. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. I mean, we can lobby, you know, uh, mansion and cinema to blow up the filibuster and then we could pass all kinds of stuff. So it's time for Professor Richard Wolf, our old buddy, the economist, co-founder of Democracy at Work.info, author of numerous books, his latest, The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics and Itself, also available as an e-book now. Democracywork.info, rdwolf with two fs.com, uh, profwolf on Twitter is his handle. And uh, Professor Wolf, welcome back. I, uh, today's inflation numbers came in, came in around 5%. And in the Washington Post, for example, they're talking about how Senator Mike Crapo of uh, Idaho tweets, massive stimulus spending is the contributing factor. Proposals for further spending coupled with job-killing tax hikes are not the remedy for economic recovery. What's your sense of what's going on with this inflation and what it means for the average American and, and how people should be thinking about it? Well, this is a bit of a complicated topic, and there's always the risk of getting caught up in the weeds. Here's the basic reality. Uh, for at least the last dozen years, the United States government 
under pressure from the mass of the people, including all the businesses, has been trying to cope with an economic system that isn't working real well, that crashed back in 2008 and has had a long, difficult time coming back from that situation. And most of what the government did was to throw huge amounts of money at this problem. And most of the time, most of the politicians, like Mr. Crapo, uh, went along with all of this. And they mostly did so because their donors, the richest people in the United States, were the ones best served by what was being done in the name of the economy as a whole. But in the end, the chickens do come home to roost. If you keep increasing the money supply more and more, it's a little bit like piling uh, dry wood uh, in, a, in a dangerous place where the sun can heat it up. Eventually, you run the risk that all of that extra money will begin uh, to lead businesses, and this is important, to think that they can raise prices because there's all that money out there that will be available to pay. What we're seeing now is the reaction of the business community, the one Mr. Crapo thinks he's helping. The business community wants to recoup the losses it suffered during uh, the pandemic, during the last year, and in some ways for the last 10 years. And they want to catch up quickly, and so they are raising prices. And the reason they're doing that is only because they're desirous of making up the lost profits when all those people weren't working, when they couldn't go to work, and they're determined to do it. And because there is so much money floating around in the economy, they're confident they can pull it off. And here comes the complicated part. They may be right. It may, in fact, be that there's enough money out there added over the last 10 years. And let's be clear, we've added more money to our economy in the last 10 years than in any 10-year period in American history. If it turns out that a self-reinforcing rise in prices, and all that that means is one company raises it, so another one does, so the people who have to buy from those companies now have to pay more, so they raise their prices. It's kind of a, a snowball effect. If that gets underway, we're going to all be taught a lesson. Can the government that flooded the economy with money now pull the money out so we don't have an inflation. And no one knows the answer to that question. Well, isn't that what we did in the uh, late 70s and early 80s under, as I recall, Arthur Burns, when he became the Fed chairman and started cranking up interest rates in order to cool down the, uh, the economy and thus cool down inflation? And it just it, it created, uh, you know, it was a mess. I mean, you know, the tail end of the Carter administration, the first few years of Reagan. Right. And, and here's why it was a mess. It's very painful. When you pull money out of the economy, the question is, whose money do you pull first? 
how do you divide up who gets hit with the burden of less money in circulation? So politicians who don't want to aggravate anybody in their voter base, in their donor base, they hesitate, typically hesitate too long. And then when things are really beginning to spin out of control, and that is what happened in the 1970s, whoever is in there now overreacts the other way, jacks up the interest rates. Uh, If that were to happen today, if there were even the hint, we're in a very different situation. The level of indebtedness, both of the federal government and of the corporate sector and of the average household in America is much higher than it was then. Raising interest rates now, which would be what you would do to slow down the inflation, would be a very scary signal to all the people whose debts, if they had to pay higher interest rates, are unsupportable. They can't do it. We already have millions of Americans who cannot pay the the rent they haven't been paying, students who cannot cover their student loans. We are an over-indebted society, and that's one more reason to be hesitant about raising interest rates. And yet, if we don't, let me give you just a couple of ideas. If 5% is the rate of increase, then this enormous struggle to get people to a $15 minimum wage will have been futile, because since most of these adjustments are not going to take place except in the next two, three, four years, by the time we get to $15, the prices will have gone up, so $15 will be worth what 11 or 12 is now, namely no increase will have really happened, and that's going to make an awful lot of workers who expected an improvement in their situation very, very angry. I mean, we have a cascade of economic difficulties that we have not addressed. And for me, to be honest with you, Tom, and and your audience, uh, this situation is spinning more and more out of control. So the Biden administration is asserting that the reason why we're seeing this inflation right now is uh, or this appearance of inflation is that number one these are numbers compared to last year not two years ago which might be more realistic and that number two there have been all kinds of disruptions in supply chains as a consequence of the pandemic and once all that stuff settles down and all this pent-up demand sort of analogous to right after world war ii um, is met things will return to normal Uh, we have 45 seconds your thoughts on that well it's it's what we call wishful thinking is it possible yes Is that certain? Absolutely not. These difficult supply chains, these adjustments, these price increases, they all in turn have their own effects. And the notion that the Federal Reserve knows what will be permanent and what is temporary is completely erased once you see how many mistakes bureaucracies like that have made in the past. They are not foresighted. They do not have the tools necessary to keep all of this under control. One of the reasons they talk the way they do is precisely they need all the help they can get, and that kind of jawboning, they hope, will be enough to help them get through yet another crisis of a troubled capitalism. We live in interesting times, my friend. Yes, we do. Indeed. Professor Richard Wolff, his newest book, The The Sickness is the System, 
And you can check it out at democracyatwork.info and rdwolf.com. Professor Wolf, thank you for dropping by. Thank you, Tom. Always good talking with you. Ray in Tacoma. Hey, Ray, what's on your mind today? You mentioned uh, we might be able to get back control of the media and the message if we break up corporations. And I'm wondering if this is analogous to the uh, Ma Bell breakup. And uh, if you could tell us if it's feasible to do it now. If so, you know, if not, why not? And I'd like to take my answer off air. Sure. Back during the Nixon administration, they determined that Ma Bell, AT&T, was a monopoly. Now, everybody had always known it was a monopoly. It, you know, it had been heavily regulated. It started as Bell Telephone back in the late 1800s when Alexander Graham Bell was still around and, you know, got subsidized heavily through the rural telephony administration during the, I believe that was the tail end of the Franklin Roosevelt administration, although I might be wrong. It might have been a little, because that was the rural electrification administration. I know for sure it came out of FDR. The RTA, the rural telephony, may have been Harry Truman or, or Dwight Eisenhower. I'm, I'm frankly, I don't remember. But ultimately, the whole nation got wired for telephones, and politicians looked at that and said, you know, this is a monopoly. It's a monopoly that is heavily regulated, but still it's a monopoly, so let's break it up. This was Nixon's great idea. And so he brought in the Justice Department, and they went after them. And Ma Bell broke up into seven companies. It was either seven companies and Lucian Technologies, the, what used to be called Bell Labs, or it was six companies and Lucian Technologies. I don't recall which. And uh, what's interesting is if you owned, say, $100 worth of stock in, in AT&T before the breakup, and then you fast forward to the Carter administration when they finally finished the whole breakup process, um, that, that $100 worth of stock, now you own stock in seven companies instead of one company, and it was worth like $140. I mean, it actually increased shareholder value. Same thing happened back in the 19 aughts uh, when, when they broke up, or actually the 19 teens, when they broke up Standard Oil of Ohio, when, when uh, Taft it was initiated under the Teddy Roosevelt administration, but Taft was the one who oversaw it. They broke up Standard Oil of, Ohio, uh, Standard Oil of New Jersey, uh, or Standard Oil, into 27 companies, as I recall. And again, if you owned one share of Standard Oil when it got broken up, you were much, much richer. So breaking up monopolies, first of all, from an investor point of view, is something that increases shareholder value, which is something, it's, it's a message that is nowhere frequently enough, you know, said enough. Uh, number two, what it does is it fosters competition. Breaking up Ma Bell is what brought us the modern day, you know, uh, cell phones and all these technological in innovations, VOIP and everything else. And, and it's a good thing. We should be doing the same thing in industry after industry. We should be doing it in banking. We should be doing it in insurance. We should be doing it in airlines. We should be, you know, we should be doing it in hotels. I mean, we should be doing it in food services, in restaurants, in pick an industry, right? There is, there is literally, and this is why I wrote the book on monopolies. There is literally not a major industry left in the United States that is not operating as an oligopoly, as a functional monopoly. And the result of that is a lack of competition. And that's why the average American family spends $5,000 a year more on everything they buy than does the average European family. Because in Europe, they enforce the antitrust laws. So that's how it would work, Ray. Thanks a lot for the question.
wanted to get into uh, a couple of other uh, stories here that I think are really uh, worth worth digging into a bit. Uh, this is uh, Merlin196357 wrote a piece over at Daily Kos that about Joe Manchin that caused me to go, whoa! I mean, you know, and it's not often <laughs> that anybody says anything about Joe Manchin that causes me to go, really? And uh, basically what he's saying is that, uh, you know, we have been uh, reluctant to push uh, Speaker, or not Speaker, uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer or President Joe Biden to really, really lean on Joe Manchin for fear that he'll just hop over to the Republican Party. But Merlin points out Manchin would never survive a Republican primary because he voted twice to impeach Trump. I mean, that's death in a Republican primary. So where, you know, should, should we continue to do, you know, to be very worried about this? You know, I think this is a pretty good point. Maybe, I mean, reality check this with me. If you think I'm missing something or Merlin is missing something, but... I'm thinking, hmm, interesting. And, and, and also, I mean, you know, there's just enormous pressure being put on Joe Manchin. And I understand that Reverend Barber is on his way up to uh, West Virginia. And uh, I know Sean is working on getting him on the program right now uh, to find out what's going on as a way of kind of leaning on Manchin. I mean, here you've got the third whitest state in America, a small, very small state. And its two senators, Shelley Moore Capito, was negotiating, it really wasn't a negotiation, was uh, forcing the Democrats to lose another month of Senate time, which is precious, in so-called negotiations. She's the Republican senator from West Virginia. And then, you know, Joe Manchin, of course, we've been talking about like crazy. The other thing I wanted to bring up and also get your thoughts on where this is going. I don't know if you've, if you've caught the story that there's a uh, hospital that just uh, basically put 140 some out of its employees on uh, two weeks suspension because they refused, refused to get vaccinated. I mean, we're seeing this now in rural hospitals in these red areas where even the people who work in the hospitals watch Fox News and listen to right wing radio. And they're all, oh, it's an experimental vaccine. It makes magnets stick to your head. It magnetizes you. And this is a real problem. And now you've got, you know, I mean, the three southern states, Alabama, Louisiana and Mississippi have in the neighborhood of 30 percent vaccination rates. It's pathetic. And here's the risk. There is a new variant. It's called the Delta variant. It's the one that was referred to as the Indian variant that is just, you know, has been killing people like crazy in India. And it is now creeping up to becoming the dominant variant in England, in the United Kingdom, but in, particularly in England. And there is this concern. It's coming out of number 10 Downing Street. In fact, this uh, Heather Stewart writing for The Guardian a number 10 source said there are now clearly signs for concern in the data. They were planning on basically opening the country back up in about two weeks. And now they're, they're seeing that hospitalization cases are going back up. Children are getting this. 
This variant has a mutation on the spike protein that apparently shuts down the ability of individual cells to produce interferon, uh, you know, a first line of defense against viral infection. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's, it's much more contagious on a bunch of, for a bunch of reasons. It attaches more efficiently to that ACE2 receptor and it, it suppresses the immune system. This is uh, one of uh, Boris Johnson's people and Mr. Ferguson said the cases of the Delta variant were now doubling in less than a week, close to what they saw before Christmas when the Alpha version, the original one, the first variant that was the British variant, took hold and sent infections soaring to a peak of 68,000. Ferguson said there is a substantial risk of a third wave. Evidence is firming up around the Delta variant being 60% more transmissible and more deadly. So what's going to happen when this hits the United States? And people start getting sick and wondering, oh my God, is this COVID? Even people who've been vaccinated, if you've only had one of the two shots, for example, on the two shot vaccines, this thing will get you. And if you've had COVID before and you think that's giving you immunity, this variant will get you. And what happens when you show up in the hospital or if you just go to the emergency room to get yourself checked and you discover that United Healthcare has changed their policy now, they're no longer paying for emergency room visits if they decide it's not an emergency. 30 million people with insurance about to get screwed. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. I'll give you a little more detail on that. And this has not yet migrated to their their privatized Medicare Advantage plans, but coming to a town near you, I'm guessing. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. So the uh, story in USA Today kind of says it all. The headline, insurance giant's new ER policy, ER as an emergency room policy, called dangerous by critics. Liz Freeman is writing for the Naples Daily News, reprinted in USA Today. Insurance giant United Healthcare, the company that has paid its last two CEOs in the neighborhood of a billion dollars, 
is cracking down on emergency room visits with a new policy starting July 1st. Isn't that sweet? Just in time for the 4th of July. That the American Hospital Association says will jeopardize patients' health and threaten them with financial penalties. So here's how it works. Uh, let's say that you, uh, you go to the grocery store and you're around a whole bunch of people and you come home and the next day you wake up with a sore throat and a cough and you're thinking, uh oh, this isn't good and you kind of feel crappy and you call your doctor's office and they say, well, yeah, we can see you in, uh, let's see, Thursday of next week. Uh, but if you think you might have COVID, you can go to the emergency room and get an instant test. And so you go to the emergency room or you have any other, you know, uh, problem that you think might be, a, you know, a real crisis. But I think COVID is the one that's right in all of our faces right now. So you go to the ER and they do the COVID test and they say, uh, no, you don't have COVID. Good news. Or yes, you do have COVID, but you're not so symptomatic that we think you need to be in the hospital. So just go home. And if it gets worse, call us. By the way, here's a bill for $12,000 for the emergency room. So you go home thinking that United Healthcare is going to pay the bill. Hey, I've got insurance. And they look at it and they say, well, this was not life-threatening. You didn't end up in the hospital. They didn't take you immediately into the uh, uh, intensive care unit. This is what the American Hospital Association said about this. By the way, United Health Group, the company, this United, this company, in the first quarter of this year, the first three months of this year, they made a $6.7 billion profit. But we want more, 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 say the executives at UnitedHealthcare. Uh, this is what the American Hospital Association said. Patients are not medical experts and should not be expected to self-diagnose during what they believe is a medical emergency. Say you have a pain in your chest. I mean, this actually happened to me once. I, I was in uh, Germany. I had arrived the day before. I was jet lagged crazy. I, I had been in, uh, in the previous five days. I had been in Taiwan, Japan. Um, I don't think I was in Australia on that trip, but it was an around the world trip. And so I was just totally out of my time zone driving down the street in Germany. And suddenly I got this pain in my chest that just would not stop. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm having a heart attack. And so I drove myself to a hospital in Germany. And they took me in and they did an echocardiogram and they did, I mean, they, they did everything. I mean, it was just a comprehensive. And the doctor sat me down and gave me a little blue pill and he said, take this pill, because I was still having pain. Took the pill. He said, in about five, 10 minutes, your pain is gonna go away. And I'm like, what's wrong with me? And he said, you're having a panic attack. I just gave you a Valium. That would have, now, that, that's a, actually a not uncommon occurrence. A lot of people have panic attacks and think they're having heart attacks. And, you know, it's not something that has happened to me a lot of times in my life. In fact, that's the only time that I actually remember. Um, but if I was in the United States, now, after I finished with that, with the German healthcare system, I said, what do you owe, what do I owe you? And they said, oh, it's, uh, it's all covered. Uh, we don't even have a billing department here. You can't pay us. So I left. Um, but <laughs> this was back in the, in the late 70s, early 80s, when uh, German healthcare was really, really, really super comprehensive. If that happened in the United States, if I had shown up in the ER having a panic attack, thinking I was having a heart attack, and United Healthcare was my insurance company, thank God they're not. 
they would have said, hey, you get to pay for your own emergency room visit. And emergency room visits are really expensive. As the American Hospital Association points out, 90% of symptoms of actual emergencies are also symptoms of things that aren't emergencies. My next book is called The, the Hidden History of American Healthcare. You can, it's available for pre-order right now uh, at Amazon and Powell's and, and any bookstore, really. Now the bookstores are opening back up again. And it talks a little bit about these kinds of issues, as you can imagine. And I, if we are just, we, we alone in the developed world have this dysfunctional healthcare system where one company makes a $6 billion profit in a three-month period and then decides, oh, and by the way, we're not going to pay for a lot of emergency room visits either. It's crazy. Anyhow, uh, let's pick up your phone calls. Josh in Madison, Wisconsin. Hey, Josh, what's up? Hey, Tom. Um, I just calling because... Uh, this fascism thing that you've been talking about today is something I've been talking about since I was in my teens. Um, I was raised by a politician who um, ran for office for $450 in the 60s and won as the first Democrat ever elected in his district here in Wisconsin to the state wow. legislature. Um, but he had to drop out when he was running against Paul Ryan in 2001 because he had already spent half of his life savings and would have to spend the rest of it and still not even come up with as much money as Paul was able to raise. Oh, it's because Paul Ryan was, was the golden boy of Charles and David Koch. Exactly. Still um, is. And, um, so Although I was raised David by a guy that does. he tried to lie his way into the World War II when he was 16 and got busted uh, because he had a passion to put down the fascism uh, spreading around the world. And um, when he saw Kennedy get assassinated, uh, that's when he decided he could give his life to his country by running for office. Anyways, before I get too distracted, um, I've been talking about this since Bush was in office, and all these years I've looked like an alarmist, um, and then I'm crazy and I'm paranoid. But here we are. Mm -hmm. Fascism is taking over America, and I've watched it happen step by step. He was a history teacher, too. Somebody that's been uh, that's studied history, it's absolutely frightening. I'm starting to get to the point where I'm just so depressed and I feel helpless. Um, and it seems like now we're at, at war, at least cyber war with Russia. Um, on top of all of this, uh, I just don't know what to do. I've tried to run for office, but I would have to run, uh, raise more than 50 grand just to run for the same seat that my grandpa spent $450 on back in the 60s. You know, right. so what do we do? Uh, I well, number one, get inside the Democratic Party. Number two, join whatever groups are active in your area that are focusing on the issues. Apparently, your main issue is democracy. Uh, indivisible is a good one. Uh, Indivisible.org. Okay. Um, uh, number three, spread the word. Call into radio talk shows. Uh, push back. Be active on social media. I mean, there there's a whole variety of things. It is not you know all is not yet lost, Josh. And and being depressed is exactly what they want right so please sure. do not slide into despair we are not you know we, we it's not gone and even if even if in 2022 the republicans succeed in in rigging the elections in swing states like georgia and arizona and uh, pennsylvania to the point that in 2024 number one in 2022 the republicans take back the house and senate in 2024 they take back the white house 
I don't think it's going to last. I think their attempts to impose fascism on the United States will be a temporary situation if they succeed. And therefore, it's even more important that we build structures of resistance that can withstand that. I'm not going to give up. I'm never going to give up. That's how we got to move forward. Josh, I have to move along. Thank you for the call. It's great to hear from you. John in Chicago. Hey, John, what's up? Yeah, I was interested in your discussion about United Healthcare. Last year, oh, for about two years, my wife and I were both in our 70s, were covered by United Healthcare as our supplement. And around November of last year, we discovered that the CEO was a major contributor to the reelection of Donald J. Trump. What a shock. And we said, no way are we going to continue with this United Healthcare system. So we as soon as we could, immediately switched over to a different health care supplement. Yeah. And more of our listeners and readers should be aware of, of the connection between Trump and all these CEOs who just, they don't seem to have any values that reflect our needs. Yeah. That's the biggest message we yeah. have. To I'm, I'm with you. And if you're looking for a good Medigap policies, look for companies that have the word mutual in their name. This was a a type of insurance company that was founded by Benjamin Franklin, for goodness sakes. And uh, they are like co-ops, basically. If, if, If when you become a customer of a mutual company, a mutual insurance company, you actually become essentially one of the shareholders. And so uh, check those out. They, they tend not to rip people off as badly as the pure for-profit companies. John, thank you for the call. Harrison, listening to KBCS in Seattle. Hey, Harrison, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. So the president's over in England, mm-hmm. and America's back. And I think the folks in England are looking at America because they've got their own intelligence agencies, and they're saying, how back are you? Exactly. We're watching, we're watching your voter suppression laws go off the chain. And how does Biden convince them that America is a capable society when as soon as next year, this whole thing could get turned upside down again? Yeah, Hitler did it with a federal laws. It's referred to as the it was actually a series of laws. It's referred to as the enabling acts, you know, that basically rigged the elections so that the Nazis would never lose. And that's what Republicans have done now in 22 states and are trying to do in 47 states. And our European allies are correctly pointing this out. I'm guessing that they're pointing it out to uh, Biden himself, to President Biden himself. And, you know, this is the consequence of, well, let me correct that. I was about to say this is the consequence of Trump's big lie. It's not. This is something the Republican Party has been working on since 1980. In 1980, in Dallas, and I'm going to play out of the 360 here, Sean. In Dallas in 1980, a Republican activist who was the co-founder of the Heritage Foundation, the group that subsidizes, you know, Hannity and Limbaugh and these guys to the tune of millions of dollars a year. One of the co-founders of Heritage, a guy by the name of Paul Weyrich, gave a speech. This is, he, he was very high up in the Reagan campaign gave a speech to a group of Republican activists in the basement of a church in Dallas, Texas. And here is a clip from his speech, Paul Weyrich. Now many of our Christians have what I call the goo-goo syndrome, good government. They want everybody to vote. I don't want everybody to vote. Elections are not won by a majority of people. They never have been from the beginning of our country, and they are not now. As a matter of fact, our leverage in the elections quite candidly goes up as the voting populace goes down. There you go. 
This has been the official strategy of the Republican Party since 1980. And so, you know, blaming it on Trump is convenient, but it's, it's, it's not, Trump didn't begin this. He certainly put it on steroids. But I, I think, Harrison, I think your point is, is well taken. And uh, have you caught anything on this? I, you know, I've seen a few articles that are speculating about, you know, what Europe thinks about Republican voter suppression, but I haven't seen anything specific where somebody's coming out and saying, well, here's what we know is going on, you know, in Europe. Have you? I haven't. And moving on, wasn't Joe Manchin primary and the DNC went to bat for him to make sure he got back reelected? So what's going on with that? Well, the Democratic Party will... Actually, I, I don't know if they inserted themselves in the primary. You know, in, in the general elections, they will always support people. Sometimes they support people in primaries. I, I just, I, I can't speak to that, Harrison, because I don't know the, the details of the facts of what you're suggesting. But, uh, you right know, Joe Manchin did vote twice to impeach Donald Trump. I mean, you know, he has, on many occasions, you know, he, he voted for the American Rescue Act. He's, he's voted with Democrats a lot. Um, uh, so I don't think that we need to be talking about kicking him out of the party or anything. I just, you know, there's a few issues here, principally the filibuster, where he's wrong. And I, I think, I think we may see a change here. I'm, I'm hopeful. Harrison, thank you for the call. Wow. Oh, one other quick story I want to share with you, uh, Epstein rape victim was passed on to Donald Trump by Jelaine Maxwell. This is uh, Graham Lester writing over at Daily Kos. A woman who says she was groomed and raped by Jeffrey Epstein as a teenager was passed on to Donald Trump by Jelaine Maxwell. Trump then installed her in one of his apartments. This is based on a uh, story from 1997. This is when Trump was a Democrat. This is not some kind of Democratic attempt to take down Trump. November 23rd, 1997, London's Sunday Mirror. This woman, uh, Miss de Georgiou, uh, grew up in an affluent family. She attended school with Kate Middleton at Marlboro College. Uh, but as a teenager, she says of Epstein, by the time I was being raped, it was too late. And he had brought her into his circle and she hung around for a couple of years. And, and Trump, and then this is the Sunday Mirror tells us, Trump flew Madam Maxwell and the model, this is this, this uh, then 20-year-old girl, uh, who, Max, uh, who uh, Epstein has started raping when she was 16, to the Sunshine State, where all three enjoyed a happy weekend together. When they returned to New York, she was installed in one of Donald's many apartments there. Uh, another one, Celinda Middlefart, is another woman who was associated first with Epstein and later with Trump. She was Trump's date on the night he met Melania. Ooh. So, anyway, back to your phone calls. Um, John in Mexico. Hey, John, what's up? Hey, Tom. Believe it or not, you and I agree on absolutely maybe 10% of this stuff, but I'm a big fan. I Thank still you. can't help myself but listen to you. But I have a feeling there's a butt coming. Free speech. Huge big butt. You're so wrong on the United Healthcare stuff on about five different fronts. But the most important one for your, I guess, audience would be that a prudent person goes to the emergency room, the insurance carrier, whether it's United, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, Anthem, any of them, they're going to cover it, right? It's the ones that go to the emergency room for something that is not an emergency that they're trying to clear out. And it's because of exactly what you said. It, there is no way anybody wants their premiums to be higher because the cost of going to an emergency room 
has to be factored in. This company and made five and a half billion dollars in profit in three months. They do not have and to raise premiums. But this is the okay, story from not. USA Today. John, I'll just read you one sentence from it. United Healthcare this month told its network hospitals in 34 states, including Florida, that it will assess emergency room claims to determine if visits were indeed medical emergencies. Claims that are determined not to be tied to actual medical emergencies will be subject to no coverage. And what's your problem with that? You want people going to the emergency room spending thousands of dollars that don't have an actual emergency? My problem with that is you if want somebody is using having the a panic attack, room as an actual John, you okay, asked me a question, may I answer it? I'm sorry. My question, my problem with that is that if somebody's having a panic attack and they think it's a heart attack, or if somebody's having a heart, you know, I mean, half the time it's an actual heart attack, right? Or some percentage of the time it's an actual heart attack. They should go to the emergency room. And if the emergency room determines, hey, that's not an actual heart attack, even though you can't breathe and your heart feels like it's pounding out of your chest, that's a panic attack. Here, take a Valium. United Healthcare, uh, you know, this example is not one of the examples used, but I, based on everything I'm reading, I'm guessing that they would say, no, we're not going to pay for that. What you thought was an emergency isn't an emergency. And what the American Hospital but, um, Association, no slouches when it comes to understanding medicine, is saying is that United Healthcare is now telling their customers, you have to be sufficiently competent to diagnose whether a condition that you think is an emergency actually is or isn't. I get it. There but, are people um, who use the emergency I'm, room as a doctor's office. Those people tend to be the uninsured. I agree. And Tom, I've, I'm an insurance agent. I sell this stuff to other companies. And I will tell you, I've helped companies figure out that when their hourly workers don't want to take time off, the only thing that's open when they do get off is the emergency room. And it's costing everybody more money. Let's not use it as a doctor's office. But your point is not correct. And this is what I think I want you to understand. And it's what I told your screener. Every single day, you would, uh, you would disagree with an association that is actually in charge of costing everybody else more money, which is the hospital association. I'm not saying they're bad people. I'm just saying their interest is not aligned with yours and mine. And neither and is the, the insurance is, industry, John, other than the fact that they well, pay you exactly commissions right. for selling their product. But, you know, exactly they, right. they but, are so absolutely the not aligned with my interests either. They're, they, these are for-profit companies. And, and the more they can deny care, profit? the more profit that they make. How much profit is okay with you for them to make? Because right now it's standing at about two and a half to three percent. I understand it's billions, but if they took two and a half to three percent out of the premium, you really think that's going to make a difference in people's lives? This, this is that, that looking is not at the it question. The question is whether they're going to tell people, "Oh, you thought it was an emergency. Turns out it wasn't." After we looked into it, and therefore, screw you, you're not going to get paid. I, I just find that outrageous, John. We're going to have to agree to disagree. I got to run too. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.